Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in once again. My guest today is Professor Sharona Pearl, a brilliant mind. We had a terrific, terrific conversation, uh, very insightful as well. Give her a follow on Twitter. If you're not already, I will link that below. She is a great, great follow. Uh, Without further ado, roll the music. talk about how crazy the world is but you and i are healthy so that's objectively awesome that's right okay right um but how is your family taking you have three children you said three children yeah all all homeschooled well only now (laughs) not i mean because of what's going on right yeah they're distance learned i wouldn't say they're homeschooled yes but they are all uh, they are all online all day. Yes. Wow. Does that, I don't know where you are parenting wise with the whole online thing, but how does that sit with you? Just, just the fact that they're on their computers all day. You know, at this point, I think we're in survival mm-hmm. mode. So my sense is that if only they were occupied all day, that would be enough. Right. If they learn something that is a bonus. Right. If they learn something and they're excited, that's best case right. scenario. And I would say that two out of three of them absolutely are completely independent. They, Their teachers are really sensitive to the fact that they don't want them to be just staring at a screen. So they're given a variety of projects and things to think about. And then the youngest one is younger. So it's a little more challenging, but we're just really grateful that my husband and I, that we have the opportunity to get some things done as well. Yeah. Can you, is that me or you? It's me. And I guess I should mute my notifications. Wow. I'm no never worries. this popular. Wow. The most. Um, well, speaking of popularity, I want to jump right into what you wrote in the Washington Post, which I just thought was really brilliant. But I do oh. have some questions. I do. Yeah. I do. I do have some questions. Um, Great. So I'm going to, this is what you wrote uh, that I I really want to key in on. You wrote, in many ways, the idea that we can measure and evaluate people's physical features to determine something about who they are remains with us today, right? Attempts to assess, for example, sexuality based on finger length or level of aggression based on face widths are recent examples of modern physiognomy, right? Um, And then you end by saying these assessments are not about expression or communication, but actual static features and the assumptions we build into which ones we think are better. So I just thought that was really a really, really interesting take on why why the theory is that it was that it's so difficult to wear masks. So for those listening, can you just give everyone a quick rundown, uh, the quick synopsis on that article, and then I'll dive into my question. So basically one of the things that that article thought about was the various reasons why we have so much discomfort with wearing masks. Obviously there's the physical discomfort. It's awkward and itchy and our glasses fog up and we don't really like it. But there's also this deep discomfort with the notion that we can't see other people's faces. And it's only when faces are covered and expressions are covered that we really understand and appreciate how much we rely on faces as a form of communication and self-expression. So both to understand things about other people, but also to communicate things about ourselves. So when that tool is taken away from us, Mm -hmm. there's this 
really awkward inability to relate to others in traditional ways. So in that piece, I tied it to this very long-standing practice called physiognomy, which actually cuts across cultures, cuts across timeframes. And I argue you could actually trace our belief that we know something about people based on how they look to the principles of this practice. So there's the really kind of you know, really practical grounded sense of, oh, if your nose is this shape, then you're this kind of person. But then there's the more abstract pieces, which is really what we're doing when we look at people and judge them, which is taking all these little bits of information about how they carry themselves, their tone of voice, their hairstyle, questions of class and race and gender and self-presentation, and then making assessments based on it. So all of that is in a face, right? Kind of like how the expression goes. Face, gait, body, self-presentation. Most of the messages we're getting are from the face, but it's really hard to parse out what actually is about the face, what is about the rest of it. Right. But be that as it may, having your face concealed makes all of the things you just mentioned more difficult, right? And that- More difficult. Definitely. How much of that stems from evolution, right? Like I certainly understand the, the, the branches, but I want to get to the root. And how much of, before we can unpack the social um, and the historical, because what you wrote about Darwin just blew my mind. I'm not <laughs> kidding. For about four hours, I was living in this world where Darwin doesn't get on that on that boat. And I'm like, wait a second, because of how he looked? I mean, he's a scientist, for crying out loud. What? But anyway, before we get there, how much of this is evolution? I think that the ability to make good judgments about people obviously had evolutionary advantages, right? You had to make decisions and you were sorting things out. Probably there could be evolutionary misfires. I'm by no means an evolutionary biologist, so I can't know enough to comment too much about <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, certainly there are adaptations inherent in being able to make assessments, right? Our senses yeah. of smell and taste teach us what kinds of foods are bad for us and good for us. And the ability to recognize danger is obviously has certain kinds of advantages, right? The ability, you know, Paul Ekman, who is a psychologist who mm-hmm. thinks about micro expressions, these yeah. argue yeah. that that has all of these massive evolutionary advantages. I don't know. I think probably there are some ways in which the judgments we make are beneficial to us And then there are lots and lots of ways in which we are layering things into that that might not be the appropriate one. So what you were talking about, the kind of biological anthropology about finger size and so on and so forth, if it turns out that there's something to that, then maybe. But at the moment, you know, this is just the latest thing and then it'll get replaced by something else. So I wouldn't say that something like that is in any way. No, I I, I just more mean the phenomena of assessing risk in a sense, right? So, so, so often you, the reason why it, there's an actual law that you cannot wear a mask in public, I believe has tenants in, 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 in this biological fact is that we can't assess risk or lack thereof or really anything if your face is covered, right? To your point. And so to walk around with your face concealed is, is, is a deception in a way, a deception of, of our ability to you know, judge you as a part of society, as it were. And I think that to say that it, you know, to say that there's no basis in evolution obviously would be crazy. So I think we can, we can agree that there are some basis in evolution. Um, but as time goes along, right, like looking to the future, right, looking at what's next, 
do we just have to come to terms with the fact that we're all just going to be wearing masks for a while? I mean, is part of it just understanding that it's difficult or is this something that maybe you think will pass and it'll just be a blip on the radar? Well, there are a lot of countries in the world where people wear masks. Yeah, that's true. And specifically this country, though, is, is what. But yes, right. in this country, we don't, whether it's because of a sense of the ability to assess others or our right to our personal freedoms in particular ways or our hesitancy to adopt even effective practices from other parts of the world. I don't know. I I think that the masks are probably here for us for a little while anyway. And in the absence of other approaches, it does seem like mask wearing is the best thing we've got, especially if we're going to be barreling towards reopening, which. Yeah, I saw you tweet about baseball. <laughs> I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but I saw you tweet about it and I was like, wait a second. This is interesting. Um, I assume you're, you are not for this plan. I am not for this plan. OK, no, did you not. read the baseball players tweet storm? Who you wrote a really articulate. Okay, so give me give me the quick and dirty argument. Obviously, it's not safe. But give me you know your top two reasons why it would be foolish, and what what would you have the MLB do? So I'm really the wrong person to ask about this because okay. I grew up. I'm Canadian. I grew up a massive yeah. hockey fan, uh, and That's I. That's why have, I was so I was so surprised. I was like, You're I have over. <laughs> well, I mean, I was there for the back-to-back Blue Jays World Series victories in '92 and '93. You know, my friends wow. were at the, at okay. the, you know, the Carter game-winning home run. No so way. Okay. Go Jays. identity. Um, but yeah, I once interviewed Sean Green when he was playing for the Blue Jays. Nice. About Jewish things, obviously. Um, I, you know, over time, I've become increasingly distant from professional sports as a practice, just in terms of whether or not that's the appropriate place for us as a society to be pouring our resources. I make no claims on what anyone else should do, but that's just, I love to play sports. I played a huge amount of sports growing up. My kids all play sports-ish. Yeah. Well, we're Jews. I mean. At some point, yeah, it's I'm just fodder. Baz was a varsity athlete, so. But, it's weird. Probably why they play any sports at all. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, yeah, and he's English, too. It's, it's a whole other thing. Okay. Uh, but I, you know, I think Major League Baseball is probably, I mean, it's the nerd sport, right? And it's become it's probably, a nerd sport. Right. That was a very sophisticated move on the part of specific marketers. The whole Moneyball thing, I think, is super interesting. I, you know, in terms of physical safety, it's probably the best. Like for me, American football at this point is just really, really hard to make any kind of coherent argument about the ethics of participating in that for me. Uh, yeah, there's very little ethic in participation that I will I will grant you. <laughs> the entertainment value, though, is another conversation. Yeah, perhaps. But uh, so I'm the wrong person to ask to ask really about Fair enough. this because Fair I enough. just it's not something I miss. It's not something I want. Right. You are a baseball fan. I am a huge baseball fan. Um, and, and of course, a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a huge uh, Mets fan. They're my team. Yes, they're my team. Um, look, the only thing I'll say on this topic is this. There is there is almost no way that they can do this safely. I think that goes without saying. Um, at the end of the day, 
we live in a capitalistic society and capitalism is going to be what drives this decision, not epidemiology. And that's really the root cause of our problem. Um, I wrote last week about um, there's an arm of the CDC that's pretty much designed to step into situations like this and basically be the science, the science and the PR. Like they have very specific protocols as to what to say, who should say it, when they should say it, how they should lead, you know, how the president should basically defer to them, um, which Obama did, by the way. But without getting you know too deep into the weeds, the root of our issue as a society is that we're not looking at this from science. We're looking at this as politics. And when you look at stuff through the prism of politics, it's A or B, it's black and white, there's no gray, it's us against them. And we go through all the downstream problems we have today. Um, what baseball is kind of trying to do is say, well, let's let's look at the science and here's our proposal based on the science. The problem becomes you can't actually do that safely. But there is a path. It can be done. It's just not safe. So if the players decide to do it, I think it's their right to go ahead with it. But it's going to come down to the players, as it should. It's their business. Well, it's not just their business, right? It's the grounds crew's business. And it's the people who sell concessions. And it's the people who work in the... But they're represented. But they're represented in the Players Association. They're part of the PA. I mean, the, the right. guys, the guys who have the hot dog licenses, for example, they're part of the PA, right? They have representation. They can block a vote and they should block a vote. I just think that in the end, we should let the people who run, the, not run the business, but livelihood depends on the business to make that decision. But it is unsafe. Well, do you want, how far would you take that logic? I mean, do you think that that's universally true? Because if you've In which case, I think the overwhelming percentage of the populace, or at least a significant percentage of the populace, would have us be opening up right now. Well, the populace is different from the people who are involved, the people who predominantly depend on the business for their livelihood. I think that— Which I I wonder if you could make that argument about baseball players. Uh, that's fair. But if you want to extrapolate it to, let's say, a small business, right? Like I, I work in a business of five, right? If we all decided tomorrow we're okay with coming into the office, I believe we should. I believe that we have prerogative to make that decision. I believe that that's part of our liberties. Right. So if you then only ever interacted with those five people, right? Right. And never went grocery shopping and never left your apartments aside from interacting with those five people, then that would be a robust argument. But I think the larger public health claim would be, actually, it's not, even though the five of you have the right to make that decision for the five of you, this is a decision that affects not just the five of you, right? So by that definition, we've failed drastically as a society. Well, I think that's clear. So this is actually something I wanted to get to because I read your essay on, you know, when you became a citizen of this country. Yeah. And you were, you were so proud. I mean, I felt, I felt the pride. I felt like you were an American, not because you had just become an American, but because you really believed in the American value system, as it were, at maybe in the past, I guess. <laughs> but how do you feel now? I mean, as someone who just became a citizen, do you still well, share that sense of pride? I feel grateful Sorry. that I'm a citizen. So part of it was a sense of pride and part of it was a sense of obligation. It was one thing to be a squatter in this country and able to feel on some level morally distant or superior, disengaged from its political processes. But 
when I have the opportunity to vote and potentially change the course of events. And I understand that one vote isn't going to make a difference, but also, you know, one vote does make a difference. It becomes a sense of obligation, sure. right? It's, As an American, you absolutely. You don't get to complain when one has the opportunity to do something about it and one does not. Mm-hmm. So that was also part of the impetus to become a citizen and I still think these things are worth fighting for, right? I remember when I was a grad student and I went to hear a talk by Howard Dean and a friend of mine Mm -hmm. asked a question about basically, should we all flee? And then Dean said, well, then who would be left? Mm -hmm. Right. This this was after the, I think, I can't remember what year it was, but it was certainly after George... W. Bush was elected. And that's that's compelling, right? This is a terrible system. Yeah. There are a lot of worse ones, right? Having said that, I I can't say that there aren't other countries that are doing this a lot better than the US, right? <laughs> that's 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 for sure. Cracks in the system that had already been deeply apparent now have become not just cracks, but fundamental fissures. So the ways in which other countries that have had more robust uh, social safety nets are able to support their citizenship in ways that are not just about the very basic human needs of food and shelter and fundamental support, but actually ways that are going to help them weather this scenario much better than the U.S. will in the long run makes you realize that it's not just the argument is about what our basic human rights. And it's also about what works better in a crisis. And this, this does not, right. This is not, this is not working. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You say that Um, crisis will always expose a wound. Crisis will always shine a magnifying glass on what you really are. That that's just what happens, right? Like, it's what the internet does too, as a byproduct, incidentally, right? Like what the internet really does is expose us for who we are. Like the truth is, were we really talking to people in restaurants 20 years ago? Probably not. Like we, we, we weren't, it's just, it looks different now when you're on your phone and you're completely ignoring the person in front of you. But this argument that we were just better at interpersonal skills before the internet, I don't know. I don't think so. I think we're worse now, but inherently it was always there. It's just exposed now. The point is, um, but go ahead. I'll let you go ahead. Well, I was say, it's funny you say that. Uh, I mean, we could quibble on that claim, but when we had our first kid, my husband and I both very strongly we felt that having kids was actually going to make you be the person who you really are. Right. That's so it. the it's such an extreme situation, especially when they're infants, that if you're a social person you will continue to be social and sometimes you will do dramatic things to make that happen come hell or high water. And if you're actually in the end, not really very social, having a kid, you will never see people again. Right. And everything else about you, it's such a heightened, intense situation that it really reveals so much about who you really are. Not well, that's a great point, but not only that children, they help you see the world in a totally different way. Like it's, it's totally reflective. Like you, I don't know about you, but when I had our daughter five, not I had, but when we had our daughter five months ago, just I, like just today, I was thinking everyone around me was once a baby. Like 
everyone started like this. Everyone I've ever met, everyone I've ever known has once been totally helpless, completely a byproduct of somebody else's decision for I don't know how many years of their life, right? And all this stuff happens to them from that point to like the moment in time and this reality that you meet them. Like all of this stuff just happens to them. Most of it has nothing to do with them. Like most most of what happens to an early person's life, at least, is completely dependent on their on his or her surroundings. And it, when you really think about like, would you react differently if you were given that exact circumstance? Probably not. Like it, it's it, it's just I don't know. It made me more empathetic towards just other people's circumstances. It just made me realize like, oh, my God, like like that person who's not nice was once totally helpless. Like it's it just messes with your brain. But I don't want to call having children a crisis, but it's kind of the same thing. Right. Like it's a seismic event. It's 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 a it's a big deal. Um, and it exposes who you are, as you said, Um so I read an interesting stat. In 1965, the average CEO's pay was two times a frontline worker. Um, today, today it's 278 times the average frontline worker. So that's a wound, right? Like that's coronavirus is going to show up and expose the heck out of a situation like that. And people are downtrodden, right? Like when your boss makes 278 times what you make, I don't care how much money he's making. You're not making a lot of money. Like 278 times is a lot more. Just uh, the belly of the beast. Check out the how much uh, professional athletes. What percentage more of average people relative to time? I mean, you know, when my mom was a kid, hockey players had jobs in the off season. Sure. Right. Right. Do you think? But do you think that's more or less unfair? The fact that they have a highly specialized skill that's incredibly rare versus, I don't know, Bob Johnson, who went to Warden and I guess knows what he's doing. I like mean, how many people could do that job? The argument would be it's not about fairness. It's about how much you generate. Right. So as a percentage of the income that you generate or the wealth that you generate in society, maybe it should be even more. I mean, that's the baseball players arguments, right? Uh, if we're not, we are generating way more than this. So if our salaries were lower, that would just be more money going to the TV execs and going sure. to the, I don't know, the, the GMs and all those people. I, I don't know that fairness is really the the basis of the argument, right? Or there's a lot of laborers who have incredibly specialized skills, right? Uh, they're just not skills that we value. So and now they're starting to see that perhaps the skills that we have undervalued are ones that we are deeply, deeply dependent on. So I completely agree with your point. Um, but to answer your question, it goes back to what you just said. Those highly specialized labor laborers, if they don't generate Y value relative to X income, like the baseball player and the CEO does, like you said, it's not about fairness, right? It's about revenue generating. So in the end, it that's that's the boat we're in. Like we're we're in the capitalistic boat in in the water. Like I don't see how we turn around and say, okay, we're just going to adopt a set of values like Norway tomorrow. It's just that's not how it is. How do you like I understand we're wounded. I understand that, you know, we're being exposed for our wounds. But 
how do you, you how do you put bandit how do you put a bandaid on something like this? I mean, well, I'm certainly not going to be able to solve <laughs> that problem, but we do have to be a little historical about it. We imagine that this is the way that it has always been in the U.S. and this is the way that it always will be. And somehow Norway or Canada or these other countries have always been the way that they have been. And none of that is true. Right. Uh, You know, the socialized medicine in Canada isn't that old. It's not even that old in England, right? There were moments of change when these things were introduced. And in the United States, there have been many, many points where we could have gone in multiple directions as a country, right? And decisions were made each time. And these things that we think are completely antithetical to the values of the United States, well, that's certainly not true, right? Higher taxes, the the amount of tax breaks on the wealthy is one second old, right? That's true. Historically, that has never been the case. That is one second old. That is easily changeable. Is that a massive shift in values to imagine that the wealthiest people in this country should pay the same percentage of their income as everybody else? We're not even, you know, a wealth test isn't even asking them to pay more. They pay much, much, much less than everybody else. To your point, it doesn't even go back to fairness, right? You're just saying like, yeah. Why should it be different? Like, why should you pay less? Right. And it, for you, it's not a question of fairness. And I think that's the beauty of your argument. Like wh- what you just said is is brilliant. Right. Like, why is it different for them? Why are, why do they get a better set of circumstances? You I mean, I, I think you can make the fairness argument along multiple vectors. You can make the fairness argument around this question of income generation, wealth generation. But you could also make it around basic human rights and needs. You could make it around contributions. I mean, I don't know. I I think fairness is just way too abstract a concept, but I think there are lots and lots of other ways we can get at it to, you know, again, a wealth, a fair wealth tax. I mean, I would go way farther than that. You know, the Elizabeth Warren plan is just fine with me, but you know, Warren Buffett has repeatedly said, take my money. Like this is, bananas that you're not taxing me the fair amount that I owe. Right. Fixing the tax code, by the way, that would be another thing that, and now I I, like, I really don't know anything about this at all, but the United States tax code is so confusing compared to basically the rest of the world. Right. Most countries, you just kind of pay a certain amount of money and you're good. Right. Like, well, it goes back to what the wealthy have at their disposal. You take something bankruptcy laws. Bankruptcy laws are pretty much written so that people can take advantage of them if they're in a position to take advantage of them, right? Like the average dude isn't thinking about bankruptcy. Like his lawyer isn't calling him and saying, by the way, if you pull this move, you can claim this in this law and you'll be back in business in a week. Just something as simple as that. The regulation on that is non-existent. And I think we can start there. I mean, I was reading about that the other day. I mean, literally, you take someone, someone like Trump who's the amount of companies that he's just basically defaulted on and not had to pay any penalty ever for losing business is, is just it's mind boggling. But do you ever see yourself leaving the country like at the end of the day? I mean, do you think you're in this for life? Well, they try to get you for life because the tax <laughs> once you become a citizen, the tax burden stays with you forever. Um, well, I mean, even if you. Yeah. Take citizenship in another yeah, country. One of the only countries in the world that even if you no longer live here, you still have to file taxes. Wait, so if you made money in Uganda, yeah, you you need to pay American income tax on that. 
So most countries have treaties with the U.S. around this particular fact. And so if you're paying taxes in Uganda, almost certainly the United States tax is relatively low compared to a lot of other countries. So you can probably count that against your American taxes, but you still have to file a, a form. You still have to file tax in the United States for the rest of your life. There's also, if you're out of the country, if you only are in the country for, I think it might be 21 days or less in the year, then you get a certain kind of income exemption for being non-resident in the country on top of, you know, what you might be paying elsewhere. But yeah, yeah that's real. That's a thing. That's crazy. And it's actually unique amongst countries in the world. This I would phenomenon. think so. <laughs> what is the rationale behind that? Once American and always American and we just want to yeah. know what's going on with you? Your money? I don't know. Because uh, they can. There's actually a funny thing I read somewhere when um, uh, when Meghan and Harry mm. were still living in England and still being royal and Archie, the son, was born. So normally... Like the income and monies of a person like that would be private. But were they to activate his American citizenship, which he automatically has as, you know, the son of an American citizen. Right. Uh, then he actually has to file taxes every year, which <laughs> would that. be for a minor child, except for not him. That's incredible. Only in this but now the state. So. <laughs> wow. Okay, so just keeping. Uh, but yes, the answer is sure. I mean, life could take us lots of places, right? Yeah. What about Jewish life? This is something that from 2017 when you dusted off your Jewish star in the wake of the Charlottesville. Um, it's so weird to think about 2017. Like, wait a second, there were Nazis marching just a couple of years ago, and now look at where we are. Like, it's so weird to go back and read some of that stuff. But it was a beautiful piece, right? And it, it spoke, it speaks to the Jewish spirit. Like that that's that's this Jewish spirit is in the face of, um, you know, in the face of something like this, you become more defiant, not less, right? You become more Jewish, not less. And I think that's a beautiful message. Does the Jewish the, the Jewish experience in a place like Canada differ vastly? And does that sort of make you, I don't know, if miss Canada, the right way of putting it, but does that make you sort of look at it differently? Uh, so Canada is a very, very large geometric country with a really relatively small population. I think there's still more Californians in the world than Canadians. Most Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And the I think 50 percent of the population of the country is concentrated in Ontario and Quebec. I don't know if these things are all still true, but they're true enough. And where are you from originally? Toronto. Toronto. OK. So, so when you talk about Jewish life. Toronto's got Canada, a big. There's kind of a orders of magnitude difference between Jewish life in a city like Toronto that has a significant population. Jewish yeah, significant Jewish population, significant population in general, yeah. and many other places. There are important and thriving and wonderful Jewish communities across the country. There are Jewish day schools, many of which have some government funding, which is not the case in the U.S., not the case in Ontario either. But in most other provinces, there's some support. But the way that Jewish life is in Toronto is very different than most let's, other places in the country. Let's take Toronto because I happen to really enjoy that city. It's maybe my second favorite city I've ever been to. So 
just Jewish life in Toronto, which is vibrant. Like I, yeah. I've I've been to shuls in Toronto. It's it's a, it was a beautiful experience. It's got to be a little a, a better Jewish life there than it is here, is it not? So my neighbor growing up in Toronto is from New York. Okay. He went to MTA for high school, I think. Nice. And went there. Uh, I went to YU. Yeah, he he did. Uh, he's a dentist. He went to Minneapolis for dental school, and then he moved to Toronto. Okay. Somebody told him that that's the best place to be Jewish in North America. So he moved to Toronto. Yeah, yeah. like that. That is a true story. Yeah, right? absolutely. 100%. And institutional life in Toronto is incredibly strong Jewishly. Um, we Great. have these shuls. They're yeah. we have huge, enormous shuls, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot that's really wonderful about that. The day schools are incredibly powerful and vibrant. People opt into sending their kids there as opposed to in a lot of places where people send their kids to day schools because the public schools aren't strong. The public schools are great and people still send their kids to day school. It's declining the same Is way it? as everyone else because it's Is incredibly it? expensive even still. Um but at the same time, in these enormous shuls that are really vibrant, when my dad died when I was 13 and my brother was 16, not a single person brought us a meal. I mean, there was a shiva. There were visits. There was support. Uh, and it wasn't until I was in my 30s when I had cooked, I would say, hundreds if not thousands of meals for people when they have had babies or been sick or whatever it even occurred to me to think that's just what you do you don't even think about it happened it didn't even occur to me to realize that that never happened is it was so not something i would ever expect i've never walked into a shul in toronto and i've been to many and i go frequently and had someone invite me for a meal because everybody who lives in Toronto has lived there for generations. Everybody knows each other. Even if you go away to university, which far, far fewer people do. Most people just go to university in Toronto, Jewish community wise. You probably move back afterwards because where else are you going to go in Canada? And you can't just move to the States. So these lineages are deep and strong and powerful. And that's wonderful. And nobody's, recruiting nobody's right i don't want to make broad generalizations but friends no, but of mine moved to toronto as adults have found it a very challenging community to penetrate wow okay so that that i would never i would have thought the complete opposite is that they're incredibly warm and welcoming just culturally i would think even before the you know the jewish value kicked in but so what you're saying in philly nobody brought you like no, no one no, showed no, up no, with meals in Toronto, nobody showed up just because your roots weren't deeply laid there? No, we had incredibly deeply laid roots. My so, family's been in Toronto since like 1906. My grandparents so, founded the Associated Hebrew Day Schools. My mother taught there. My brother was the president of the school. So what uh, am I missing? What, just, what, what? People just didn't. It just didn't happen. I, some of it might have been growing up in a concert. We were at a conservative shul and the like families who took us for meals or supported us more were maybe more in the Orthodox community and it just wasn't a value. But I, I think that's not true. I mean, I think here, I don't know, but 
It wasn't that people didn't show up. People were very supportive. People were great. But those kinds of things that you take for granted as what Jewish communities do. Really? I don't know. Maybe it was an Orthodox versus conservative thing, or maybe it was. I don't even know why that didn't happen. And I would hope that now if somebody in that community loses a parent, you know, as a young kid, there's more kind of of that infrastructure. But I think some of it is just these enormous shuls which the community is very proud of and committed to is also like that kind of stuff doesn't happen in the same way. Wow. But I said that, I don't know. We have, we have lots of friends who go to enormous schools here and there is that infrastructure. Right. Um, so <laughs> what you're saying is you may not get fascist rallies, <laughs> but you know, every community has its downside, right? Like every, every sort of Jewish topography has its, has its layout, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that's really wonderful about the Toronto Jewish community. So I don't want to, you know, yeah. I really, I really do. But uh, so I can only speak to my experience. And that was that's that that was not a good one, right? That's a terrible thing. And I know for a fact that every community that I've been a part of outside of that one, you know, yeah. when something happened, like when I had my babies in Philadelphia, people cooked for us for two months. That's beautiful. And we're in like huh. a small little Stiebelschule, you know? Right. That's incredible. Uh, and, and that happens, you know, that's just an assumption. Like, that's just a yeah. given. Right? Yeah, to the point where I couldn't even understand that that this would happen in a place this like Canada. This is just what you <laughs> right. do, right? right? But it doesn't seem like that's just what you do there. Maybe there are, I'm sure there are communities where that's true there. But it's such a given here. It's such a yeah. an obvious, like, framework. Right. So did you grow up conservative? Yeah, but ish like Toronto is also a bit different on that front. And I think we talked about that a little bit where the again, this is changing. But historically, the community has always been a little bit to the right uh, in that kind of traditional framework. Uh, So the synagogues were that I grew up in and all of the Toronto synagogues basically growing up were that were affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism were not egalitarian. Ah. The rabbis <laughs> in my synagogue growing up both went to YU. Really? We used okay. the Hertz Chumash and had for the daily, our daily sitter was an art scroll. The Shabbos one was the like, whatever it is. So um, that's, that's like Orthodox light. That's not even like conservative doesn't really do that justice. I feel like if, if just the term gets thrown around for what it is today. I think it's really interesting that, you know, all right, anyway. but, well, but now, I mean, almost none of the synagogues in Toronto are actually affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism anymore. A few are, but that the narrative as to why this is true is up for some debate, but pretty soon after um, the JTS released its responsa about, or whatever they called it, ordaining gay rabbis. Many of the synagogues in Toronto dropped their membership. They would say that it was not an act of homophobia, but it was just too expensive to maintain membership in this institutional structure that did not represent their needs or ideologies, and they felt like they weren't getting much out of it. And it is enormously expensive, you know, and, and the community had already been separate from it. Make of it out you will. But the synagogue that I grew up in, for example, is no longer a member of the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism. I I don't really understand how one can make the argument that it's homophobic to to feel that way about 
that circumstance because if you if you adhere to a certain, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here, but the the fact that anyone would argue that that's homophobic, I think it's it's crazy. It's it's not homophobic. It's ideologically not where they stand. That's different from having a phobia against homosexual people. It's just not the same thing. I don't really well, get that one. I mean, homophobia. Like, how would you define homophobia? Right? Like, hom- so, it, it, go ahead. I mean, if you dropped out of affiliation with an organization that represented that decreed sure. and decided the laws for you Jewishly, right? Based on an institutional process that you in theory support, right? And then they came out with this finding and that was the thing, and I'm not saying it was, but in this case, if that was a thing that said, well, I can no longer be a member of this institution because they feel like people who identify as gay cannot be rabbis cannot be rabbis but if a gay person said i want to become a part of that community a member would they say no to that well i mean this particular synagogue that i'm thinking of the rabbi won't perform gay marriages again not the same i don't know i I just that's not homophobic that's i think i think it's pretty clearly discriminating against gay people it's discriminating and there is this institutional kind of you know the institution with which you are affiliated says this is we are okay with this and you say well i'm not then i don't know okay with it (laughs) right that's that is that is it my argument would be that they're not shunning away homosexual folks right they're welcome to part welcome to be a part of the community i would imagine i don't know well you're not welcome to be part of the community judaism is not a religion in which the rabbi is held to higher standards or separate standards than any member of the community that's true not catholicism where the rabbi has a separate set of obligations right even the nazirim in the history of the jewish community Mm -hmm. are not uh, rabbis, right? Our rabbis are our teachers, but they don't have any different obligation. And if anything, that's one of the significant failings, I would argue, of the conservative movement, wherein often in small towns and communities, or not even, the only observant family is that of the rabbi, right? That is I, not, I, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The rabbi is not an exemplar. Right. And that's very, very unique to Judaism. The fact that you can, in yeshiva, right? Like if, if you have, if, if the Rosh Yeshiva is giving, an arc, you know, giving his shear and you show up and you say, I actually have an issue with your interpretation of this Rishon. Like, it doesn't even have to be the Gemara. It could just be like your interpretation of, of someone who said something, you know, 600 years ago. If you have a basis in argument, it's an argument, right? Like no one would ever say to a student that you have no right to speak to the teacher, right? If you have basis. In right. I mean, if you compare my husband and I, who is a gush, talk about this a lot. If you compare the archetypal space of learning in yeah. kind of the Western Christian tradition, it's a library and it's silent, right? Our resonance of a library is a place where there's no talking. Whereas the Midrash is a place of arguing. It's Very a place loud. Of- it's the dialectic and the the learning does not happen on your own. It always happens in Chavruta. It always and and it's not just about Chavruta in terms of two people. It is the interplay of the debate, the discussion, the questioning, the challenge. I mean, the first lesson I got in Gemara class was what is the question, right? Exactly. 
It's not what is the answer. Right. We're not there to, we're not really, the, the Gemara is not really positioned for answers. If you, if you just look at it objectively, like if you just took a really smart mathematician from like, you know, you go to Yale and you're like, look, dude, let me explain to you this layout. You have a room with like seven rabbis and two of them argue with three others. And in the end, they just ask each other a bunch of questions. And sometimes we don't even have an answer. Right. You wouldn't look at that and say, well, that's a great way to find an answer. You would look right. at that and say. The questions are about whether or not the bull falling in the hole is a greater, you right. know, injury right. to somebody. You're that, not there. Right. Right. I mean, it's not like, about the answer. It's it's right. so sometimes so theoretical that it's it's a thought exercise to figure out what do you really believe. Right. More than it is to find the answer. Um, so. Okay, so Jewish life, I think it's, it's super interesting for someone like me who who just had a child. Obviously, you took some journey in your religious evolution. I, I don't know. <laughs> we don't really have time to get into that, but let's assume, I think, right? Like, thanks for you. As time went on, perhaps a little. What is the biggest challenge for this next generation, right? Like, what is what are the things that that you are trying to instill in them that you think perhaps given time, given society, you know, what are the, what are the challenges that's facing us today that maybe wasn't facing your generation and, you know, your parents perhaps. Do you mean Jewishly or in yeah, general? Jewishly. I mean, specifically Jewishly, like observance, like brass tacks, right? Like take something like Shomer Shabbat. Yeah. I mean, I think. Did you grow up Shomer Shabbat? Like can we, can we just start? With yeah. My husband and I talk about this a lot, too, that you kind of need the true believers, right? The system's not going to work if you don't have the people who really, like, have this vision of a God up there who's sitting and, like, cares about the hashkacha on your food and thinks, like, you really do need to show up and daven three times a day. And, you know, it. Though those are the people who make the communities work, right? And cultural Judaism is beautiful and powerful, and it makes it unique amongst a lot of other ways of being in the world, and that that is an incredibly valued and valuable part of the ways in which people are Jewish, without a doubt. But like the synagogues, the backbone of the synagogue is the person who's showing up because they think they need to be there, right? Absolutely. Not the cultural folks, right. which is the, not casting right. aspersions. Prayer might not be right. as significant a way, or, you know, and there are people who show up because of that as well. But the people who are there every week, the people who are laning, the people who are davening, the people who are passing on the skills. Those the ones are, doing are getting right? it done, right? Like the ones and, moving. And, and I think we also live in a world where rightly in many ways there's a prioritization of kind of fundamental human decency there's a prioritization of compatibility in life right and ultimately if your kid starts thinking critically about the religious system and really values the culture and ways of being jewish in the world but isn't that kind of true believer uh the way that our communities are organized now, that that we're probably going to see fewer true believers. And that's fine in lots of ways. That's great, right? But There's why? so many why valid just, ways to be Jewish. But. Why do you make that assumption? I feel like you skipped a step there. I, I, I actually agree with you, but I want to know how you get there. Um, 
So I, I, I wonder if I'm going to re- regret saying a lot of this stuff out loud, but I think the kind of bargain of, let's say, the original vision of modern orthodoxy, where you could be in and of the world, engaged in secular topics and still be doing Torah Judaism, let's say, or the conservative Judaism version of this, right, of continuing divine revelation, wherein Judaism is actually adapted to the ways of the world, right? I think those are lovely and wonderful visions that ultimately just don't work, right? Ultimately, I agree. I agree. if you are a true believer, I, there are people out there who make it work, and that is great. Um, we could be a little politically incorrect on this show. It's okay. I agree with you. Um, so so you are just saying— as a parent too, like I want my kid to marry a decent person, right? Right. If they're Jewish, I think that that you know the kind of life that we live, it probably would be much more convenient for them to marry a Jewish person. But absolutely, whomever they choose to partner with, maybe not marry, whatever way in which they end up being partnered, um, right. decency, you know, fundamental human kindness is the priority for me. And we're like super engaged Jews, right? <laughs> so like. If even I'm like, eh. So that's interesting. So you're saying like on a macro level, there is just no way that modern orthodoxy as it stands today and even as it stood maybe 10 years ago, just doesn't have a chance to be as prevalent over the next 20, 30, 40 years. But on an individual level. I don't know. I mean, I don't want this to be true. I don't want. Uh, statistically, it is true. Right. It should I don't be want said. the backbone of religion to be zealots, right? Right. that's kind of how the thing works. (laughs) So that's a challenge. And and, in every generation, I think that's more of an intense challenge. And things like modern orthodoxy, conservative Judaism, reform Judaism, reconstructionist Judaism, all of these variations are attempts to find ways to make these things be okay, to suture these crises, right? And they all contributed a huge amount to the vibrancy of the religion reform Judaism, you know, is it has social justice at its forefront in a way that I think has been incredibly important. Reconstructionist Judaism is probably more in line ideologically with what most people believe than any other version of this, right? Conservative Judaism has produced this infrastructure of Jewish camping that all the other denominations have modeled. It has produced kind of a, a version of um, egalitarianism and traditionalism that feels like it really works for people. All of these are great and wonderful and profound innovations uh, that I absolutely treasure. But uh, right, statistically, it's factual. All of them are not <laughs> sustaining, right? All right. How much of that? comes down to the internet just just the internet like i don't i don't think i don't think much i mean i don't know you know if anything like it's funny when people started you know back in the day when people started j dating and this was a little before my time but when people are internet dating before it became like a real thing in in the rest of the world and my non-jewish friends would hear that like you know someone i know met their wife on J-Date and they'd be like on their, they did what with who they, what say, well, it's not like, it's not like if 
you know, you went on the internet and met someone like no person, no person on JDate is more than two phone calls away from right. being verified. Right. Right. Like, right. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. <laughs> That's baked into the system. These are very, <laughs> there are very few of us. These are very, very small communities that we're yeah. talking about. Right. It feels like everything like growing up, I didn't know a single non-Jew. It feels like an all encompassing world, but we're a speck. We're less than a speck on the American kind of population landscape. Um, I mean, maybe there's a way that the Internet has made this these communities stronger, more affiliated. Maybe more Jews married each other, if that's the benchmark, which maybe it shouldn't be because of J-Date and saw you at Sinai and, you know, all these other things. Maybe, I don't know, maybe people are getting together for zoom shivas and and they you are. know and all these other things maybe maybe these have brought communities closer together so i'm i'm naturally a very pessimistic person but on this topic i am oddly optimistic i actually do i actually do think that the intermarriage rate will level off i i, I do believe that people will find religion in whatever capacity a lot more over the next 20, 30, 40 years than they have over the last. I think that as things get more chaotic, I think that people are going to look for order. And there's, there's always a subsect. There's always an amount of people. There's always some swath of individuals who always identified as Jews, but never really understood what that meant at all. And I think, I think you're seeing it now. A lot of people who have this time on their hands are really getting into like, but what does all this mean? Like, who am I? And, and, you know, how can I learn about more of my history? And I think that people are going to lean in more over the next 20 to 30 years. I really, I really am hopeful about that. I don't know about, about observance, but I do think that there will be a greater sense of pride just. And uh, maybe, and, and that's also fine. I guess what yeah. I'm saying is that, that on some level, I don't know that that's a question of optimism or pessimism. So I don't know that that's any better or any worse. Like for me, no, so much is about what I get out of it, what my community gets out of it, what I can give to my community. But if somebody's just as happy without that being a part of their life, Oh, of course, of course. Right. We're not here to say that your life would be better with or without it. I just think it's like a funnel. Like the more people discover Judaism, the more people will become, let's just say, more religious on the bottom of that phone funnel because it's going to be a much lower number just statistically. And I think that's a good thing. I think that communities are going to be reimagined and rebolstered in, in many ways. I like for just here in Florida where we live, when I first came down here for work four and a half, five years ago, the home prices around the shuls here, half of what they were just four or five years ago, um, it's growing. I, I really do believe that people are, are it, it's not just Judaism. I think people are looking for meaning in times of chaos. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's better. Um, that seems yeah. like an so, optimistic. Okay. No. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's really optimistic for someone who's always like, nah, that'll never work. Forget about it. <laughs> like, I'm the old guy who's like, that's a crazy idea. They're just never mind. Um, do you do you think that your that your kids sort of are well-rounded or more well-rounded because of your background and maybe your husband's background? Like, do you think that in today's world, sort of the more you come from people who are not closed minded, the better? Or do you think that going back to your original point, actually, the only ones who really make it are the Haredim. So we might as well just 
come to terms with it. No, because I don't think that that's necessarily better, right? Like the Haredim are continuing to be Haredi, but again, I'm not <laughs> sure that that's more of a value than being yeah. a happy, fulfilled, you know, member of a community to which you contribute or what have you. I think my kids have more exposure to different ways of being than I did. Again, I don't know if that's, you know, we live in the heart of downtown in a city. I grew up in a suburb, right? Um, in other ways, their lives look a lot like mine. They go to Jewish day school. I went to Jewish day school. But the community in which we live and their friends and their sense of space is defined by their synagogue life, by their school life, but also by their neighborhood life. So that's very different than the way that I was brought up. Yeah. I, I just it's I spend a lot of time thinking about this, like as a new parent, I, I constantly like I just sit there and I look at her and I'm like, what world? Um, and we'll end on this note because it, it, it was brought back to what you originally told me. Like if, if no one was here, I'm not sure what the quote was, who would fight or um, I asked my rabbi this uh, before we, you know, before we had the, the baby and we were thinking about having a kid. I, I walked up to my rabbi, I said, look, rabbi, is it better is it necessarily an obligation to bring a child into this world? Like I understand Peruvu is a mitzvah. I get that, but just, just level with me. <laughs> well, that's a whole other conversation, but I just, I, I, had to, I had to level with them. Like you got to admit that maybe having a child during, let's just say, God forbid the Holocaust, maybe isn't the best idea. Like aren't there exceptions? And his answer was no, there are no exceptions. And his reasoning was very similar to what you began saying. You can never make that assessment. That's not your decision to make. Yeah. And so I look at the world and I, I think in the end, it's not really our job to worry about everything else. It's just our job to do the best we can do and instill the values we think are important. Give them the tools that we hope they'll use to solve their own problems. But you can't even fathom, I think to myself, what they're going to go through. So why worry about it? And I think that's yeah. just where I get where I settle in the end. Thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Thanks, Josh. This was really fun. This was great. This was great. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Josh. Have a great evening. Bye. Bye.